But this message I have tonight was on my heart for weeks before I was invited to preach, and uh, it's like a load I want to get off my back because I had to carry it two weeks longer. But at the same time, as I get into this message, I get into it with much thanksgiving and praise to God. And the subject is making Jesus attractive. That is the Great Commission in a nutshell. Making Jesus attractive. And that probably goes against the drain in some ways because what's attractive about a bloody cross, you know? Um, we have done a great job through history of trying to make the cross attractive. We made it into diamond jewelry and necklaces and so on. And uh, people that don't even really aren't Christians necessarily or real practicing a lot of times will buy that as jewelry. Wear it as jewelry and maybe it means something to them. But uh, anyway, that's kind of the centerpiece of tonight. I asked myself the question, what if this was the last sermon I was to preach to TFA? What would I preach? And I realized I honestly could not tell you. I first thought it would be this, but then when I got to think about it, you just can't deal with that until you deal with it. <laughs> you know, you can imagine what you would say and what you would preach, but uh, you don't know that. Uh, but it is centered around the Great Commission. That's where our focus is tonight. And uh, I want to say thank you for those that um, have gone on before me on Wednesday nights and those on Sunday and so many of you out there. And I feel humble to be up here after having heard you because we have some outstanding young ministers in this congregation and we're blessed. In 1957, I went to a youth convention in Oklahoma City. It was a common practice in our household that the whole family went together to things. We went to camp meetings, we went to district councils, and sometimes to sectional councils in the summertime. And back then they had those monthly CA rallies that some of you young folks, CA meant Christ ambassadors. And uh, that was a big thing, and we always rejoiced when we brought the banner home because maybe we had the biggest attendance or whatever it was that would give you the banner. And I can remember uh, riding in a car one time. There's 13 in that car. And obviously, that was before seatbelt days, wasn't it? <laughs> they were packed in there, but we'd pack cars and go and so on. And uh, most of you are already aware that my father was a pioneer pastor. He was four years, I was four years old when he went into as much as full-time ministry as he could because, he, you know, a lot of times he did have to moonlight different jobs and tentative work and so on. 
So technically, I have been in the ministry since I was four years old. But uh, this thing of having been ordained 50 years that you saw on Facebook and so on is really not accurate yet. They recognized me for 50 years because the meeting district council was in April, but really it's in October when my 50 years comes up. So I'm still working on it for 50 years. And you think you know something about preaching in that period of time, but um, so I'm humbled just to stand here though, realizing that um, we have some very outstanding ministers that have ministered to us and as well as our pastor. But I want to read just kind of touch on several scriptures that uh, is about centered around the same thought of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Most of us know that very well, I think. I hope we do. I hope we have read it and dwelled upon it and thought about it. But let me read that and then the others I'm going to just touch on them. But it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And that would be my first little point. They went where Jesus told them to go. And that's the call of every disciple, every Christian. My daughter, Michelle, goes to a church that does not use the term Christian. In fact, when I was talking to my grandchildren one time about that they didn't quite understand what I was saying and then when I started using the word disciple they immediately knew what I was talking about. That, that's their terminology is be a disciple, become a disciple. You get baptized and you're declaring that you're a disciple. And the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go and when they saw him they worshipped him but some doubted Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven. By, by the way, I didn't want to make the point. They worshipped him. They went where Jesus said. They worshipped him. And Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The call is all cultures, all races. Did you know the Simmons of God for years, some churches, someone black would show up. They'd say, uh, you know, there is a church God in Christ down the street or in the next town. That's really where you ought to be going to. And, uh, but yet we would be sending missionaries to Africa. You know, even my little childhood brain, I'd couldn't figure that out. <clears throat> Therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. That's the next thing. They went where Jesus said to go. They worshiped. They taught. They baptized. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even 
even to the very end of the earth. Or the very end of the age. I think the NIV puts it that way, end of the age. Do you believe it's possible we might be living in end times? Do you believe it's possible we could be seeing that end of the age? And that was one of the messages that I heard over and over and over again that Jesus is coming. That's probably why my mom and dad traveled so light. They weren't interested in earthly possessions because they really didn't think they'd ever reach retirement age and need those things. And so when they did retire, well, they got concaught. I'm thank thankful for Social Security. That kind of saved them. And so one of the challenges always as Christians is that bounce, finding the right bounce. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we need to figure out what God has called us as individuals to do, what has God has called us as a church to do, and we're talking about the Tuscaloosa First Assembly of God to do, and then larger than that, the church universal to do. I'm going to call the guy Sam because I don't want to bring attention to a certain individual, but Sam lived in this city. Monday night, I sat across the table from Sam's son. I hadn't seen him for several months, and I said, uh, well, how's your dad? He said, oh, he died last year. He was killed crossing University Boulevard. That hit me like a ton of bricks. Sam worked at the VA when I first went to the VA. Was kind of in a leadership, pretty visual position, I'll say that much. And from everything I gathered by the crowd he run with and those he associated with, that uh, he, he wasn't classified as a church person or a Christian. Just about three or four years ago, I met his son, maybe five years ago. In fact, we were roommate on the Kairos. Probably it's longer than that now. Maybe ten years ago now. Eight, ten years ago. And through that, I found out, oh, this is, I'm using Sam as a name, Sam's son. And oh, yeah, I haven't remembered him. And he would update me about him. And I knew he was real concerned about his dad and his lack of faith. Then his son led a Kairos weekend. So dad showed up to support his son. I 
I don't know how much he was attending church by then or whether he was attending church at all, but he wanted to support his son. And when he saw me and he recognized the face he knew and we're close enough to the same age, he was about seven, eight years older than me, but uh, why we spent quite a bit of time together and God touched him. I could tell on that Kairos weekend because then he wanted to come back on his own to another Kairos weekend. And I was so glad when his son was able to say, and I may be, Barbara and Danny, I may be giving away the name to you, and I just want to kind of keep it confidential in a way, but it's a great thing. He said two months before he was killed, he did his Emmaus walk. And if you don't know what Emmaus walk is, that's a walk, if you're going to encounter God, you're going to encounter God. Danny and Barbara's involved with that. And my heart cries, and this is what this message is about, is... And please, at 25 after, Jim, wave your arm or something or other, because we got young people that's going to have to be relieved from their classes. <laughs> we don't, I don't, I can't see Marquita's eyes from here. Normally, I can, by her eyeballs, I can tell. <laughs> okay, I won't put it on you, Jim. All right, but um, we, don't let me run too far. <clears throat> but the Sam's of this world. Right here in our own city. Mark 16 says, 15 through 20, and I'm just going to touch on some things here. It says, go into all the world, preach, baptize. And then in verse 17 it says, signs will accompany those who believe. And after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God, and then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. Is it possible that Jesus' last command is priority number one? It would seem, you know, we think of a will and the last testimony is, the last will is the most important thing, you know. There might be many wills in a person's lifetime, but the last will, the last testimony, the last recording or whatever it is of what dad wanted or what his desires was, that's kind of the legal thing to say that's the most important one, that's the one we're going to go by. kind of feel like I'm preaching to the choir here tonight. But sometimes we need to be reminded maybe and uh, maybe we need to do a little self-examination from time to time. Luke 24, similar again. Christ was, then he opened his mind so that they could understand the scriptures and he told them this is what is written 
that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And your witness of these things, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I guess I'm getting to be that age where I was raised among the early Pentecostals. I've had the privilege of meeting every general superintendent that served the Assemblies of God since 1929, except the one that died in office. And I saw him at a distance but never actually met him. But the Zusa Street Revival was in 1906, and uh, it was that was the beginning of what we call the charismatic Pentecostal wave that has gone around the world. But the message of being endued from on high, the message of receiving power, the message goes back to the book of Acts, the book of Luke. It is not for you to next one seven. <coughs> the time nor dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will see power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then again... After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And then in verse 11, there was this angel that came and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go in to heaven. If we had time, I would be asking you what made Jesus attractive to you in your life. Maybe throughout your life. Now my evangelism Gifts has not been real well used early on, but I can remember at the age of about nine and ten, and those of you that was in the, um, like some people started to call them the old timers, but the, <laughs> the seniors meeting, <laughs> prime timers, where I spoke a couple of weeks ago, the story I told there of my life somewhat ended at Pawnee, Oklahoma, and I was about nine or ten years old. We run out of time. But uh, at Pawnee, when Dad went there, we felt like we were moving into a mansion because here was a house that the wind didn't blow right through it, and it, uh, we wasn't having church in half the house like we were at Hennessy. And... and uh, so uh, 
and we got to remember with his five children. And so very quickly, Dad put a flooring into the attic, and us four boys, that was our bedroom. Nothing else was finished up, but there's a flooring and a staircase, and that's where we slept. And uh, I can remember a teenager and moving away from God, and I would say as my little nine-year-old, I'm, I'm sure he wanted to kill me a many nights, and I'd say, be sure and pray. <laughs> I'd say it to the room. I said it for all of us, I guess, but I was really thinking about him. That was my sort of my attempt to evangelism. My next attempt at evangelism that I can recall was we had moved to Eakley, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Let me tell you, before we moved to Eakley, we went to this youth convention I started telling you about a little bit ago. And this was 1957. I was 11, getting ready to turn 12. At that time, when you was 12 to 36, you was considered part of the youth group. And, uh, and uh, Wednesday nights, most churches was youth night, and it was led by that group, 12 to 36-year-olds. And uh, so I went to the youth convention as an 11-year-old boy, almost 12. And I looked down on the front row there of this big meeting, which was big to us. Several hundred people would attend. And there's three young men there. Hands. Raised. Worshiping. I said to that little boy's heart, I said, I want to be like that someday. In other words, I wanted to have the courage to do what my heart already wanted to do. These boys was 15, 16 years old, long in there. In the providence of God, within a month, I think, within six weeks, we had moved to Eakley, Oklahoma, and there was those three teenage boys in that church. That's where Dad became the pastor of the next church he went to, Eakley, Oklahoma, the place I still call home to this day. I only lived there four years, but I call that home. Kenneth, one of those teenage boys, at 16, became my Sunday school teacher. Ron Thiessen, my brother, married his sister, so I keep up with Ron to this day. Max Yearwood was the third young man that was there. That making Jesus, making worshiping God, making following God attractive to me. Was there still making all that attractive to me. And to this day, Max plays his guitar now at the Lord's Country Church. Ron has pastored the Fort Cobb Church off and on, and I understand right now, Ron's a bit older than me, and him and his daughter's pastoring it together. 
And uh, Kenneth is pastoring a church to this day in Grove, Oklahoma. And I was privileged to be in a youth group that I figured it up today that eight out of that small 200 population town, church, you know, we, on a good Sunday we'd have 100 in Sunday school, you know, once in a while we might go over 100. But I could count up eight out of that youth group that either became the preacher or married the preacher and went into full-time ministry. Eight. I'm one of those eight. And then there was those in that youth group, like my brother Gail, who at the age of 16 worked all summer long, went up doing the farm work, you know, driving the tractor. You know how anybody who's got a farm background knows spending 12 hours a day on a tractor is not unusual when you're getting ready to plant. And he went up and hired out in Grant County and uh, worked all summer long, came home, and God impressed upon him to give his summer's wages to missions. You know, it wasn't like maybe $250, $300 back then, but he gave the whole plug. And the reason I know that is because then he came to me and asked to borrow money from me, my summer wages, so he, so he at 16 could buy a car. <laughs> what he had planned to use that money for. But I tell you, that made Jesus attractive. Someone's willing to bleed so much that they pay a price. And so in this message tonight, we're centering around making Jesus attractive about the Great Commission, about Jesus is gone away and he's going to come again. And it's with but when I was thinking about what if this was my last message to preach here at TFA, one of the things that crossed my mind was the last time I heard my dad preach, he was just about a year older than me, and I thought, Dad, it's time to hang it up. <laughs> so somebody might be saying that tonight about me, I don't know. But... Uh, The gratitude is this, 42 years ago we came, 41 years ago I guess now, 41 and a half years ago we came looking for a church and there was people like Tom and Lolly Whitehead that was part of this congregation, there was people like Raymond Giles that was greeting us every morning and I came up to Raymond Sunday and I said Raymond one of these days I've got to become the greeter and greet you come to church because you've been doing it 41 years greeting me coming into church people like that make Jesus attractive serving God attractive Carmen Lawson befriending us raising our kids for us when we were out of town. Can you imagine Carmen Lawson and 
Shelby and Marquita and Roy and Giles and Kathy Giles out on a boat on Lake Tuscaloosa. But I can remember about 40 years ago we did that. Roy's boat. The Smiths were part of that congregation then and still part of this congregation. And can you imagine them about 35, 40 years ago and saying, let's meet us. Is, is it TBY, the ice cream place? Teach, what is it? TCBY. Let's meet at TCBY for ice cream. They was old. They were, what were they, in their 50s maybe? <laughs> they were older folks. But we have a job to do, which is really not a job. And see, there is a calling, and I put it like one of my Kairos brothers put it Monday night. There's church people and there's kingdom-minded people. And he was saying, the reason I'm a part of Kairos is I see all these kingdom-minded people that want to do something for the Lord and go into the prison. We are called to be kingdom-minded people. The army and the church has a lot in common. They have those that are there for their own benefit, and then they have those that is more like a calling, a chosen way of life. Those that it's more of a calling, they're mission-minded. And I'm not talking like, like we think of going foreign missions. They're mission-minded. In other words, they're focused on the cause, the mission. We need more people that are mission-minded. But you need it. See, as this little 10, 11-year-old boy had a heart to do something for the Lord and I started to tell you about when I was almost 12 we had moved to Eakley and the youth group and these guys you know these three guys that had so inspired me is part of that and they said you need to invite people to our youth party so maybe they'll get in church so uh, I look around my classroom as this 11, I guess I was probably 12 year old by then because I think it's about October. And I see Dolores Reynolds there. Mark Quitters met Dolores. And I think, I'd like for her to come to our party. <laughs> <laughs> I invite her, her sister, with great fanfare, marched her over to me, this shy 12-year-old, and said, here's your date. Boy, that cured my evangelism. <laughs> Scared me to death. I stayed on the other side of the campfire where we were doing the weenie roast most of the night. But uh, I think about that a lot of time. My attempt and my desire, uh, at least partly, was 
I thought that was someone that needed to get involved in church. But sometimes we need something that breaks us out. And what broke me out was youth of mission. And I'm not here to promote YWAM, but YWAM, I happened to have the privilege in 1964 to go with the YWAM team and Lauren Cunningham himself interviewed me and said, get on the bus in faith, because I was a broke, I didn't have any money. But he said, get on the bus on faith, whether you got any money or not. Changed my life. Just getting exposed to doing something for Jesus, talking to people about Jesus. In an environment of people that was kingdom-minded. There's church people, and there is kingdom-minded people. But the army and the church is called, they both, have, they both have as their model reach or recruit. They both have their model as train, and they both have their model as send. And they take nothing for granted, the military doesn't. Everybody has basic soldier training. My son-in-law is going into active duty at the age of 44 as a dentist, but he became in the reserves at age 42, I think. First time to serve, and he had to go to basic training. Oh, they modified some for dentists, you know, but he still had to learn the basic soldiering skills. And so I think we can learn something there that uh, <clears throat> and it is a fearsome thing to approach someone about and I still struggle what do you say I go three times a week to DCH rehab we call it well it's the DCH gym now and there's all these guys my age there working at doing their exercise I love it because we're all gray headed almost white headed and men and women, but we're all in that same age group. But I keep asking myself that question. What can I do to make Jesus attractive to some of these people that need it? And over time, hopefully I'll find that answer because, you know, as we get to know each other and so on. But I, <clears throat> we all have our calling to work. And that is our mission field at least part of our mission field. And it's a little bit like the reserves and active duty. The reserves has to take the same training as active duty because they could get called to go anywhere at any place at any time. And so they need that same skills. And I think in the church, you may be working full time making a living some other way, but find a way of getting all your soul-winning skills and all your uh, uh, discipleship skills attuned as much as possible. 
I think most of us know that when you give a person a cause that catches their heart and their imagination, they'll make great sacrifices for it. Just imagine if you as a young man, and I speak to the men here because football teams still is young men's sport, but uh, as a young man would somehow get selected to play on the Alabama football team, that would catch your whole heart, it would catch your whole imagination where you'd do anything and everything to accomplish the mission because it was such an honor, such a privilege, such an opportunity. And when you come to believe that following Jesus and working for Jesus and following his call is the most greatest honor that you could ever have, And it becomes primary rather than secondary. Yes, we still have to make our living. I know that. And what an opportunity there is in the workplace. And that's largely why I went into chaplaincy because I wanted to be in that workplace every day. And that's why I love the VA because there, with every 10 feet there was a need there's so many needs that sometimes you just had to walk away and recoup yourself because they overwhelm you but the opportunity and the needs was there and uh, I know people like Dennis that goes in assisted living you, you can go in there every day any day and there's opportunities and needs I know the will of God is not always easy and painless, but I think sometimes our problem is not that we don't know the will of God, it's our double-mindedness. And I don't know how to tell you to do this, but I really believe it. That we need to come to a point where we really believe that we work for God and just an employer pays our paycheck. And I was accused of that as a chaplain, said, you know, you, you know, you don't have anybody your boss. I said, Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. But I had to always honor my employer and I had to try to fit in all those things the employer expected of me, but always behind that, knowing that the real reason I was there was not to spend all these times on logs and so on, which in order to be there, I had to do those things. And all this computer stuff I had to do in order to be there, but that was just the price tag to do why I was really there. And I don't know how you translate all that into your work environment, but I believe if God calls you to be a pharmacist, if God calls you to be like my son-in-law, a dentist, if God calls you to into the school system or the medical systems or, or the factory and so on, that deep down inside with us, we need to always keep in, least in the back of our mind, but it probably needs to be more in the front of our minds 
that God has given me this job for a reason. He's allowed me to be here, and I am supposed to be light. One of the things chaplaincy taught was follow the pain. Army chaplaincy is really good at teaching that to army chaplains. Follow the pain. Be out in the motor pool at 4 o'clock in the morning when the guys are getting ready to go on a combat mission and they're gathered together, they're scared to death. Be there when they're just weary and worn out on the 12-mile march. Be there when they get the Dear John letter. And we live in a hurting world that is full of Dear John letters, a hurting world that is in pain. And we are called to love, love, love. Listen, listen, listen. So I have a drink. And you refused to do it. So I had to look at my watch. And it's time to wind it down. But I have a dream that this church will somehow increase its light capacity. Not that there's not a lot of light. I'm not putting anybody down. There's a lot of light going on. And if you just knew what some people are doing, sometimes we need to talk to each other so we know some of the places people that may not be doing a lot of things right on these grounds, but they're doing them other places, and that's wonderful. I was so impressed when I was invited pastor to go with me to the uh, award ceremony at uh, where they was given the Vietnam Veterans Awards at the VA about two years ago now, I guess. And I said, Roy Giles is going to be one of them that gets it. Let's go support Roy Giles. And so they gave the different ones receiving it a chance to say something. And Roy talked just a little bit about his military experience, but gave all the glory to God. I said, in that one, two, three minutes, Roy did more witnessing than a lot of us do maybe in a long period of time, especially to a crowd that need to hear that someone given the glory. So you never know who may be doing what and where and so on. But we're all called to do that. But one of my prayers as an old man is that I will see it another time. I saw eight youth group members and a whole bunch of others that went into active church ministry as a teenager. And then we had the privilege to go to Australia and be there with a the congregation for two years and and it's just been amazing what that group of people have done. Someone went to the Philippines, and I'm not Philippines, but uh, anyway, South America's uh, Brazil, and did 25 years of ministry there. And some went out from the church and started churches in these little towns as the husband was making a living, being a postal guy out there in the little towns. His wife was starting churches. 
several different places. And on and on and on, different ones. And I, I saw so many do so many things through the years for the Lord. And I said, God, I want to see teenagers do it one more time. And I, then all of a sudden, our youth minister, I mean our music minister, says, out of the blue to me, I'm going to go full-time with I said, wow, God, you're doing it right before my eyes. I told the seniors this. I'm going to tell it again since not many are in here, but I was at district council in April, and I needed someone at Regency to preach because Jeff... I want to tell you, they're saying that Jeff is just improving all the time. He's preaching over there about once or twice a month, and Jeff is, he's one of our guys. God is using him. But I needed someone because Jeff couldn't be there a Sunday, and I just struggling, and I kept thinking of this guy. And I said, I don't know. Yeah, I met him at Kairos, but I don't know. He's young, and I don't even know that he's called to ministry, but I just have a feeling about him. I finally went to district council, and uh, the speaker had a mic in his hand and telling the story about where God spoke to him one Sunday morning. Give the mic to the lady on the front row. He said, I didn't know who the lady was, anything about her. He said, I handed the mic to her because God told me to. And she said she gave one of the most wonderful, moving messages that he had heard. Powerful. And God said to me, give the mic to Brandon. I texted him. Brandon said, Wow. He said, you're an answer to prayer. I was just praying about that this morning. I've been struggling with I should go into ministry. And I don't know where all that's going to go. Brandon has spoke twice. In fact, he spoke four times. Two services there and two services later, so he spoke four times now. But what it really hit me is, who do we need to give the mic to? They just need, somebody may just need the encouragement. Somebody made the invitation. We're always looking for Sunday school teachers. I started teaching Sunday school at 19, and my brother-in-law started teaching Sunday school at 16. Maybe we need to give the mic to some people. I don't know. But one thing I know is this that we have a message to tell to the nations. But it begins right here in Tuscaloosa. Let us pray.